states. Uh, so one in Connecticut, uh, Alicia, um, our river steward in Massachusetts, Andrea, and then we have two that work both in Vermont and New Hampshire, myself and um, my kind of partner in crime, I guess, uh, Ron Rhodes. And so we, our job is split up a little bit different in that he does a lot of restoration work. So he um, removes uh, like uh, old industrial dams that are not being used and does riparian restoration, plants trees, works with farmers and stuff like that. And then I do more of our policy and regulatory work. And then we both do, you know, river cleanups and go out and do education and things like that. So. Okay, great. Um, can you talk a little bit about what the history and the current state of dams along the Connecticut River and watershed in Vermont are? And also a little bit about the relicensing of the Connecticut River dams. Sure. So those are two they're both huge questions. <laughs> so we could start with different. the first one. Um, the history of so the, the history state of, of dams. The dams. Well, you know, part of when you work on watershed issues, you know, you're essentially trying to address what impacts a particular watershed. And depending on where you are in the country, that could be very different, right? So in New England, because of our industrial past, uh, a lot of the impacts in our waterways um, comes from dams, from dammed rivers. Um, in the, you know, at the turn of the century, there were sawmills, there were grist mills, there were, um, you know, the river was used as kind of a way to run lumber down to the larger cities. So a lot of uh, dams were built in the, you know, starting in the 1700s, but especially in the late 1800s, uh, to support all that industry. And initially, the dams were built um, for water wheels, right? And the, the water would actually turn a wheel that would, using kinetic en energy, run a mill or mm -hmm. something like that. Uh, with the advent of electricity, that kind of switched over mm -hmm. to where um, a lot of the smaller dams were built to actually generate electricity to then run the mill or whatever the case may be. So for the main stem of the Connecticut, Right now, there are 13 hydroelectric dams. Okay. Um, the three, and there's a couple more dams that don't have hydro on them right now. So up at the top of the watershed, there are um, four big lakes. They're called lakes, but there's really a dam in the river making a lake. Mm -hmm. First Connecticut Lake is a very, uh, well, the fourth one is the smallest one. Anyway, it's like first, second, third, and then Lake. Uh, St. Francis um, at the very top of the watershed. Um, as you go south from there, there's three really large hydroelectric facilities uh, that are collectively called 15 Mile Falls um, projects, which because there is a section of the river for 15 miles that used to have falls, and that is often where you would build a dam because you kind of have a bedrock structure to Already build it kind on. of. Yeah. So those are very large facilities owned by Great River Hydro, which used to be TransCanada. Okay. Um, but in the past two years, they've kind of spun off uh, this smaller LLC called Great River Hydro that owns those facilities. And then uh, as you come down river, there's the Wilder Dam, the Bellows Falls Dam, and mm -hmm. then the Vernon Dam. 
And then over on the Deerfield, there's a couple more, Somerset Reservoir and Harriman. Um, all of those are owned by Great River Hydro. Okay. Which is kind of, at this point, you know, that's the, all of their holdings, and they are now owned by a, a Boston-based asset management firm, essentially. So um, the history of those dams in particular uh, you know, the area around Wilder, Vermont, had a community developed there. And the, under the Wilder Dam is an area called Old Cop Falls. So that area was actually dammed uh, in 1910. Um, and then it was reconstructed as, a, as kind of the current hydro facility in 1949. And then the Bellows Falls Dam was built... Uh, initially, there was a canal dug in Bellows Falls in 1802, and along that canal, there were a bunch of industries. So mm -hmm. there were some paper mills, sawmills, and there was a small hydroelectric project built in there um, in that period. Okay. And then in 1927, they built the, the Bellows Falls uh, hydroelectric station, which is in kind of the, you know, the center of town now. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in Vernon, the hydro facility there was constructed in 1909. And that was kind of the biggest, you know, uh, new project. Um, it was one of the first dams in New England that could transmit long distance over power lines. Okay. Um, so kind of a big deal. But also, you know, 1909. So it's been there a long time. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so that's sort of the history. Uh -huh. I mean, really, I think a lot of the history of hydro facilities is connected to our industrial past, right? Uh -huh. As uh, industries grew all over the country, you needed a way to power them. And um, often that needed to occur locally. So in New England, because of the, the amount of water we have and rivers, that's an obvious source of power. Um, in terms of the relicensing, the right now, so most hydroelectric dams uh, have a license through FERC, which is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And those licenses are essentially kind of a contract with the people of the United States that acknowledge that the um, that the company that is making electricity is borrowing our river for a period of time to make that electricity. The idea being that, you know, that creation of electricity is sort of a public good. Mm -hmm. We need electricity, right? Um, and, but many of the hydro facilities are privately owned. So there's still, uh, you know, a desire to make a profit on mm -hmm. that electricity. So, Right now, the three dams on the lower section of the river here in Vermont, New Hampshire, which is the Wilder, Bellows Falls, and Vernon, those three have been going through a relicensing process that started in 2012. Um, and those three have been linked up with two other facilities in Massachusetts, the Northfield Mountain Pump Station and the Turner's Falls Dam. And FERC is kind of stewarding all five of those projects together through this relicensing process mm -hmm. because there is some, you know, part of the relicensing process, you're looking at what the facility is doing to the river, right? The effect. Right. And so you want to be able to look at that 
kind of as a larger ecosystem question and link up how the projects work together. So it's logical that they're kind of grouped that way. Uh-huh. And the license, um, once it's renewed, will be a 30 to 50 year license. Okay. So the last time, you know, the function of the dams was examined was 1979. Um, we have this opportunity now. And then once this license is complete, you know, we won't have another opportunity till 2058 or something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, right. when I'll be long dead probably. Right. So it's a, there's a weird, you know, trying to tricky way to kind of generationally pass on information from one licensing process to the next. But Right. Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on WVWLP Brattleboro. That was Kathy Erfer, and she's a river steward for the Connecticut River Conservancy. And we're going to go to a quick song break before coming back to her interview. This is John Hanlon, Damn the Dam, New Zealand Music. It was produced in 1973, and it's a protest song against the damming of Lake Manapuri, for a hydropower station. The falls to kiss the image of a mountain The early morning mist has ceased to play Birds dancing lightly on the branches by a fountain Of a waterfall which Surveys this grand domain, and from miles and miles around him, the sea rolling green. Tomorrow, all his beauty won't remain. Damn the damn, cried the fantail as he flew into, as he flew into the sky to give power to the people. All his beauty has to die. Rainfall from above and splashes on the ground Goes running down a mountain to the sea And leaping over pebbles makes such a joyful sound Such is Mother Nature's gift to me I have great reflection, reflection of a grave Trees that once lived green now did brown Die. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's community radio station. We were just listening to Kathy Erfer, River Steward for the Connecticut River Conservancy. She was talking about her work and the history of dams, particularly connected to the industrial past of um, industry along the Connecticut River, and then what's currently happening with the relicensing of dams and Joe, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the things that she was talking about. Yeah, well, I think that it's really interesting that these are up for relicensing um, and that, you know, 1979 was the last relicensing. And, and she talked about just the era of when the dams were being built. And, you know, at the time, um, rivers that weren't harnessed were kind of seen as raging torrents that um, often took their toll uh, on many of the uh, communities since so many people um, settled in the river valleys early on. And I think that just with uh, the increase in, of, of solar power as an option, you know, that wasn't uh, around in such widespread um, such a widespread status at the last relicensing of the dams and then certainly wasn't around during their construction. So it's easy to say a lot's changed. Um, and it's also, you know, she really mentioned a lot about the, the rivers on the main stem of the Connecticut and also a few on the Deerfield and some of the other um, larger tributaries that feed into the Connecticut River. But uh, it was really interesting when I was working on with uh, Trout Unlimited in the Deerfield River watershed, we were looking at a lot of the smaller um, first order streams that were kind of, you know, at the headwaters of many of these rivers that feed into the Connecticut. And those are also fragmented uh, as well. And, you know, it's, I think it's underestimated just how many dams there are in a watershed. It's easy to kind of look at the the main stem of the river and see those really obvious ones. But as you kind of make your way up into the smaller headwaters and some of those smaller streams, many of those are dammed as well. And that has uh, numerous impacts on, on the fisheries that are there too. Yeah. And one thing that really stuck out to me was that these, uh, that Great River Hydro is privately owned and therefore there's the desire to make profit. And so when we start commodifying natural resources like the river, I think that um, will lead to an like adverse effect for the people around those areas because just even the idea of a dam making um, affecting um, the height of the water for 45 miles by the river, you know, along that river where the dam is and the false creation of um, human-made lakes that that creates as well. Um, I'm sure that there were people displaced by these dam projects, and we also know that the uh, continued struggle around fighting dams is one of indigenous sovereignty as well. Sure. I mean, you know, Springfield, Massachusetts, and William Cronin's book, uh, Changes in the Land, talks about how that was a gathering place for one of the largest Atlantic salmon runs in um, along the East Coast, and it was a it was a gathering ground for Native peoples. And you know, when uh, after colonization, uh, the colonialists actually relied on those salmon as well. You know, both for food, um, but also as fertilizer for 
the lands and um you know it's 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 easy for us to forget what the river um looked like in the past but i think you know as we drive up and down 91 today and and see all those big dam projects and so it's kind of hard to imagine what it used to look like but um it, we've certainly had a number of effects uh on the ecology um and the hydrology of that river yeah thanks so much so as we continue to question this idea of development and progress that comes with dams and particularly hydroelectric dams, we'll return back to Kathy Erfer's interview, the river steward for the Connecticut River Conservancy. Thinking about the hydroelectric dams in the US as opposed to hydroelectric dams around the world, um, can you talk a little bit about the, the history of hydroelectric dams kind of in a, in a larger... In general. In yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I know a little bit about this, but it, um, it, it's different probably in different parts of the world, certainly, and it's different kind of in different parts of the country. So one of the things I've learned recently was that, um, you know, in the early 30s, or late 20s and early 30s, there were several floods, really uh, bad floods that occurred along the Connecticut River. And simultaneously, in that same era, the Tennessee Valley uh, Authority was established. Now, so the Tennessee Valley Authority is a federal project which, um, you know, has at this point it was created in 1933, so it has a power mix of like 10 coal-powered plants, there's 29 hydroelectric dams, there's three nuclear power plants, um, and then there's some gas plants. So it's a, it's a huge public utility that was developed in the 30s that is federally owned. Um, and kind of in response to that, uh, you know, to industrial development, it was a way of sort of trying to find a way to harness and create electricity, mm -hmm. right, for the country as the country grew. So, um, you know, there's a, a, because it's federally owned, there's sort of an interesting backstory there because there were a lot of proponents for it at that time. And there were a lot of people opposed to it because it felt like a socialist scheme, right? That the federal government would be mm -hmm. kind of uh, making and creating our electricity and controlling that. Um, so on the heels of that, you know, also sort of at the same time, the Army Corps of Engineers uh, was doing a bunch of studies to look at other places in the country where you could develop electricity. Uh, so they would pick rivers and essentially do a study on the river. So they did a study of the Connecticut that came out in, I think, 1936 um, that identified something like an opportunity to put in uh, 33 reservoirs, so essentially 33 dams on the main stem, mostly for flood control, also kind of in response to a series of floods that occurred in 1927 and 1936 that were really bad floods. Um, but with the idea being that if you're putting a dam in for flood control, you can also add hydro 
electricity to recoup some money, right, mm-hmm. to help pay for the dam. So one of the, um, I think there was a, a federal bill introduced to create this Connecticut, essentially Connecticut River Valley Authority, similar to the Tennessee Valley Authority. And uh, it was shot down partly because of our sort of long-standing New England cultural um, perception of the federal government and not wanting to be controlled by a federal authority. And so there's sort of a sense of independence in, I think, our New England culture. Um, so it was rejected, and what, came, what was set up instead was an interstate compact to look at how the river might be developed. And through, you know, political back and forth, um, hydropower was actually pushed out of that equation. And so there were some Army Corps dams uh, developed in along the Connecticut River drainage, none of which in the main stem of the river. But so, for instance, if you go up the West River, you have the Townsend Dam, mm-hmm. you have... Um, the Ball Mountain Dam, there's the North Heartland Dam, there's a bunch of Army Corps dams that were put in place to control for flooding. And, you know, the main thing that they're flooding again, you know, flooding to, trying to protect is the, the Connecticut River from dumping downstream into Hartford, Connecticut, which is built, you know, oh, I see. essentially in yeah. a wetland, right? So it never should have been built there. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, that's an interesting piece, too, is where, you know, the history of settling, people se- where people settled. Right. And the, therefore, what had to be done to, to deal with the, the way people settled. Right, right. <laughs> so you sort of have these bigger urban centers down there where there's money. Mm-hmm. And I think that also came into play in the politics of how the river got developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because there was this idea that, oh, there's this, you know, rural landscape up there and they need money. So we'll go in and build this dam to protect our economic resources further downriver mm-hmm. um, and shoot you know, and be owned by Boston or New York City-based companies. So it's basically using the resources of Vermont and New Hampshire uh, to not only block our rivers, but also send the money down to, <laughs> you know, Connecticut, right. New York. So, the, yeah, the, that flatlander <laughs> feeling <laughs> is deep-seated yeah. for many generations for a number of reasons. But So, yeah... So in the pushback, what ended up happening as the interstate commission got set up, there were people on that commission um, that, from a personal business standpoint, wanted to develop the river for hydropower. And that's essentially what kind of started to happen. So this company, New England Power Company, was developed. They built the Vernon Dam. Um, They ended up taking over the Bellows Falls Dam, which initially uh, there was another hydroelectric company running that okay. you know and and it and when i'm t- i'm talking about this is like the 1930s 1940s so okay. a really long time ago mm-hmm. um so that's how our facilities ended up being privately owned and uh, you know my guess is that at least in the united states there's a bit of that uh kind of battle back and forth you know so there are some hydro facilities that are federally owned and then a lot that are privately owned uh-huh. and what we've noticed the ones that are privately owned are, um, you know, more and more kind of traded as an asset, right? Like they're often a part of a larger investment company's portfolio, uh-huh. um, energy portfolio. So, you know. And so 
is the so is the for the private uh, corporations is the money and energy transferred to other places or is the local community um, do they benefit from having hydroelectric dams? Well, I think we benefit in that it does provide jobs, right? So there are people yeah. that work at the dams that live in our community. When, when Great River Hydro was formed out of TransCanada, one of the great things that occurred is they kept all of the staff. So these folks that work at our local facilities have worked there a long time. You know, there are people that have been on the job working in those facilities for 20 or 30 years in many cases. Um, so in that regard, it's kind of a local company, right? And the, and the people have, uh, uh, that work for Great River Hydro have, um, you know, they understand the history of the facilities. They've been there a long time. The parent company is a Boston asset firm, right? And at any point when it makes sense, they could hand Great River Hydro over to somebody else, mm -hmm. you know? At the moment, they're... I think there's probably making good management choices to leave it alone and maintain those people in those jobs. Um, so I'd say we're a little lucky in that regard. Um, but if you get the example of First Light in Massachusetts, that also was sold a couple of years ago. And the parent company of that is a Canadian company that is um, basically... Uh, controlling assets for uh, public service employees in Canada for their retirement funds. So it's a it's an interesting web <laughs> yeah. know, that gets uh, woven in terms of the money mm -hmm. where it's going to. Yeah. Um, you know, for the most part, they're uh, you know both of these are for profit companies uh, with you know with a lot of regulation controlling what they do. Um, but ultimately, there are investors that want a return on their investment. Okay. And so that creates a different dynamic when you're looking at how the dams affect our ecosystem. Yeah. You know. That's kind of our, my next question is, is exactly that. Like, what are the Im environmental impacts of, of these dams on the environment and also um, for, for people? Yeah. Well, so when these larger hydro dams are built, an area is flooded, right? Yeah. So, um, and depending on the scale of the dam, that could be a huge area. It could in be a whole town, right, that ends up getting bought and people moved out. Um, so there's that kind of impact. Dams are, you know, from an ecological perspective, they inhibit the passage of fish, right? Mm -hmm. They... Um, slow the flow of water coming down through a riverine system and when you're stopping water and holding it the water heats up it drops its sediment behind the dam um, and then the way that the facilities actually run there's other impacts so you know these are all peaking facilities meaning that they hold water back mm -hmm. and then there's a point in the day when they start to uh, generate electricity and okay. let the water through. And so the pool, the reservoir behind the dam ends up fluctuating, you know, two to three feet, uh, depending on which facility you're talking about, but I'm talking about the local ones here, every day. And uh -huh. that is not a natural way that a river functions, yeah. right? You have floods, um, but it's not a daily change in the river, river level to yeah. that extent. So there are ecological impacts from that. Um, 
And over the course of, you know, several decades, uh, there's been other federal legislation that has developed, you know, Endangered Species Act, um, the Clean Water Act that have imposed um, other regulations on the facilities that they have to meet. So for instance, um, they have to provide fish passage. It's not the same as having an open river where fish can swim up. It's, you know, it can be quite tricky yeah. actually to figure out how to trick a fish into coming up a particular An little section yeah. <laughs> of a river, yeah. you know, to try to get them over a dam. Um, and often when they're, if they're traveling down the river, they are traveling through the turbines. So depending mm. on, you know, how big you are and how quickly the turbine is spinning, what kind of turbine it is, you know, you may make it or you may be chopped up. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, not to laugh about that, but, um, yeah, so dams, inherently, there's ecological impacts, right. you know. You have to balance with that the need for electricity, honestly. So, you know, part of our work is trying to find that balance. And, you know, the basic question there uh, comes down to this question of, you know, what is our ecological health worth, right? So there's an investor that wants a certain amount of money back on their investment, you know, what are they taking from the public f for their investment, you know? Yeah. Um, so kind of a philosophical, I guess, uh -huh. argument there around, like, what is the value of our river and who owns it and who should be, um, you know, collecting that value or benefiting from that value. So what would you see as a success in your work? And, Finding that and you have that third or that period right now up for up to relicensing. So like what is happening right now and then what would be a success? So in terms of the relicensing, um, there's a lot of because it's a regulatory process, there's a lot of stakeholder involvement, right? So there's conversations, there's studies that the companies have done on uh, the ecology of the river, you know, whether or not the dam affects it, to what extent it affects it. Um, and so a great amount of data has been collected as part of the relicensing uh, to look at that. And so out of that information, there's essentially conversations or, you know, um, some sort of negotiation. And that can be either through a settlement discussion with the actual dam owner or it can go through a FERC process. But the bottom line is you're collecting data, you know, the fisheries biologists, the recreational people, the people that live along the river, and um, myself as an advocate who kind of represent all of those points of views, uh, are pushing for the most protective um, things that we can get in the license to make sure that the river is protected mm -hmm. uh, and that the species are protected and that um, property owners along the river are not having their property taken from them through the through the project operations. Okay. Um, so in a kind of simplified nutshell, yeah. <laughs> that's the process. <laughs> okay. It's pretty detailed. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, a success, I mean, you know, I think we, we celebrate our successes in a couple of ways, right? The flip side of this is there are all these r smaller 
industrial dams, old industrial dams that are left in our watershed that are not being used to generate hydroelectricity. They're not being used for anything, right? They've kind of been left over from another time period. And so one of the successes uh, for us is getting those out of the way, right? And restoring open reaches of, you know, good habitat for fish Mm -hmm. um, and restoring our ecosystem that way. In terms of the hydro facilities, you know, because of the need to generate electricity, and when you think of the various ways we might generate electricity, um, hydroelectricity is better than some other choices, right? right. So um, I think the successes there at the moment are really trying to find that balance and make sure that uh, we make the best choices we can to protect the ecosystem to the extent that we can. And the point at which our energy production switches over, right, to where enough is coming from solar and or we've created enough efficiencies that we don't need to generate as much electricity, getting those dams out of there at the point at which we actually really don't need them anymore. Uh-huh. And, and the way energy development is going right now with solar and wind and the development of battery storage, um, there's a lot of change happening. And so, you know, in another 40 years, it's actually, uh, we really don't know what it's going to look like. Yeah. Right? So it's all in, in the process of small, small steps here and there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, great. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. And I, I learned a lot myself. <laughs> so thank you. It was great to have you. Thank you. Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio on WVEW, Brattleboro's community radio station. We were just talking with Kathy Erfer, who is a uh, river steward with the Vermont Connecticut Conservancy. Um, And we're going to go to our sponsor in a song break. You'll hear the song. um, It's called... For the Love of Water, and it was written on in recognition of World Water Day um, to raise awareness and inspire action on water issues that are affecting each and every one of us daily. Thank you. Take the space between us You are not a stranger I am made of water so are you Man is not a soldier He is more than just a thing to cut and climb and
wij doen en laten. Alles wat wij zijn, wij zijn nergens zonder water. of today's programming at WVEW is underwritten by Southern Vermont Solar. Southern Vermont Solar is an experienced local solar company whose mission is to offer the community high quality solar services, including photovoltaic design, permitting, construction, and maintenance for commercial and residential installations at competitive prices. Southern Vermont Solar is dedicated to being an active part of the solution to the growing climate crisis while providing customers with a sound financial investment. For more information, visit svtsolar.com or call 802-387-0088. WVEW thanks Southern Vermont Solar for supporting Community Radio. Hi, thanks. This is Indigo Radio. You're on WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. This is Indigo Radio, and we were just talking with Kathy Erfer, the river steward of the Connecticut River Conservancy, and she was talking about... um, you know, what, the things that she might see as a success in her work as a Connecticut River steward and expanding and elaborating on the history of dams. Um, yeah, and I thought it was particularly interesting, the politics of how the rivers got developed and who owns uh, these dams and also who's benefiting financially. Um, and Joe, I wanted to ask you a little bit to elaborate a little bit more on that in terms of how are dams connected to our current economic system? Yeah, well, I think Kathy did a good job of kind of highlighting the, the two ways that I see um, the dams, at least in the Connecticut River watershed, are connected to the economic system. And one um, is kind of that 
idea uh, and reality, actually, of the dams being created um, upriver of the major economic hubs uh, in the Northeast. Um, you know, when these dams are being built, Springfield and Hartford um, and the other cities in the lower portion of the Connecticut River that um, had a great deal of, of the production, the mills, the factories, um, you know, it, damming the rivers in Vermont um, were kind of seen as, as a means of, of protecting those economic resources. And uh, the second element of it is that the dams themselves, um, or the, rather the rivers themselves, were seen as a commodity that could be bought and sold. So, um, you know, by damming the rivers and controlling the river, um, they were able to produce electricity uh, that could could be bought and sold. Um, and at times, that's at the expense of um, either the people, the small communities living in the area, or um, the ecosystems. Yeah, and it's even um, without hydroelectric, you know, like to put the hydroelectric aside for a moment and... Kathy was talking about how these dams were built to try to control the flooding and that naturals flood, I mean, sorry, rivers flood naturally. Um, and so the question for me is why do humans think they can control the environment by building cities in um, wetlands and then having to control the river so that those cities don't flood? And that's exactly what happened in Springfield, Vermont. They wanted to build the industry along the river in a place that was a natural flood zone. And so they had to figure out ways to control the river so that industry could use that um, power generated from the river, but also then so people could form and live around the industries because you want workers to be closer to work, um, et cetera, et cetera. So really the politics around the rivers is about the accumulation of wealth. Sure. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's kind of a contradiction in itself, right? Like they need to be by the river in order to harness its power for production. But at the same time, that puts the working people in, in at risk to lose their own property um, due to flooding. So, you know, and as uh, development has taken place within the Connecticut River Valley, there's certainly we can't, you know, just get Springfield to to pack up and leave, nor would we want to. Um, so, you know, as we begin to consider the removal of dams in the upper Connecticut River watershed, I think Kathy did a great job of highlighting the importance of removing many of those smaller mill dams on the tributaries of the Connecticut. And that is um, directly connected to the impacts to the fisheries um, previously the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service spent a lot of money on um, Atlantic salmon restoration in the river, mostly through the form of hatcheries. And uh, it was an extensive program that was throughout the watershed. Um, you know, it was actually, we did a project in, in, in the schools with um, where kids were growing Atlantic salmon fry and would take them to the river and and put them into the small streams where they would have, you know, historically um, reared before heading back out to the ocean and then coming back to spawn. But, you know, so many of these, the tributaries of the Connecticut River are, are fragmented through dams or culverts or, uh, you know, that are no longer 
being used. They no longer play a role in in um, our local production, or they don't play a role in controlling flooding. So, you know, it's probably unlikely that we'll see the Bellows Falls Dam come down anytime soon, just because you know it, it plays a huge role in flooding. But they have done a lot in regards to making fish ladders and and allowing migratory fish species such as alewives, shad, Atlantic salmon to get back into the river system to spawn. But we need to begin, in order to make these programs successful, we need to begin looking um, at the tributaries in the Connecticut River and identifying dams that aren't being used anymore and simply play no role, start beginning to remove those so that there's more... Uh, habitat for those fish once they pass through a fish ladder and get into the upper reaches of the river. You know, it's interesting because even the restoration of the river brings into play who should be paying for that restoration because the industries have up and left Vermont. They're somewhere else profiting, probably outside of the United States at this point. And um, so therefore it's left to the people who did not benefit from industry in Vermont to pay for the restoration of the river to get rid of some of those old mills. Sure, and I think like even just as as far, you know, the um, the major hydropower companies certainly they they do what they have to by law in order to protect the ecosystem surrounding the river because it's certainly not in their economic interest to um, facilitate restoration or install a multi-million dollar fish ladder of which most these things that have been um, pushed by the people in the state, they've obviously had to comply with in order to maintain their licensing. But, you know, the just the idea of how the rivers are managed for hydroelectricity, you know, Kathy highlighted that on most of our, uh, the hydroelectric facilities in Vermont, that the, the water is held and released on a daily basis. And, and this impacts the, the cubic feet per second of the river. Um, the total outflow of water coming down the river um, every day, and these fluctuations are huge. You know, sometimes uh, feet in height and loss. Um, so, so that has a, an enormous amount of impacts on both aquatic vegetation, macroinvertebrates, fish species that can live in the river, and as Kathy highlighted, like the. Um, the temperature fluctuations in the river due to the dams and the slowing of the of the overall current of the river has totally changed the the fishery as far as we see it um you know historically the connecticut river would have been of uh, uh northern brook trout um would have inhabited the river and also they would historically have run out to the sea to feed and get and you know they're a species of char and then you have the Atlantic salmon um, being in the salmonid family, and, and also the chars are, are well known to, to be cold water fisheries. Um, you know, they, these fish need extremely cold, well oxygenated water that um, we simply just don't have in the Connecticut River Valley anymore. And now, you know, we see a lot of those fishermen who fish on the river are, are going for those warm water fish species that are typical of lakes like bass and pike and such. So, yeah, it's totally changed the entire ecosystem of the river for sure. I don't usually refer to memes, but I saw one this week that <laughs> pertains. It was like, what, what um, species would purposefully um, kill off their food source? 
yeah, only that, humans. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. you can live off salmon, right? You can. Mm-hmm. And I think salmon, you know, especially I've heard something about Pacific salmon that, you know, if the whole, as the whole population moves upriver, you know, humans can harvest essentially two-thirds of that population. Um, and the one-third that's left to spawn can replenish the other two-thirds. And um, we continue to destroy that population you know by impacting their ability to move upstream to their spawning resources so you know as far as uh what's a sustainable sustainable resource um certainly the salmon fishery is one um and that resource provides food rather than electricity so it's important to consider we're a long way off from restoring the uh atlantic salmon in the connecticut river but um i think that it's certainly worthwhile for efforts to continue uh so joe um, when, with this conversation around hydroelectric dams and towards the end of Kathy's interview, um, she was talking about the successes and the goals of, in working, um, for the Connecticut River Conservancy as well as, you know, with and around dams. Um, so there is this need for electricity and there are, pros and cons for hydroelectric dams. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you think should be happening in terms of electricity and hydroelectric dams? Sure, yeah. I mean, I agree with Kathy in the sense that as far as like dam removal goes, it's, it's really those, um, those, up, those tributary dams and, and um, sources of habitat fragmentation that need to be addressed um, out the gate. But um, you know, I think as a lot has changed even since the last relicensing in 1979, and as Kathy noted with the development of, of batteries and um, the increased ability for us to uh, store energy from solar and wind, that we need to kind of begin to think about is hydropower um, the best option for us here in Vermont? How does it, we need to start, I think everyone, um, in the Connecticut River Valley needs to begin to weigh in on whether, uh, you know, that they see that hydropower is is um, worth it at the expense of the Connecticut River as an ecosystem. And I think that we should certainly, um, here in Vermont, begin to explore um, both wind and, and solar at a deeper level um, and and begin to yeah, make those kind of changes. Yeah, and in addition to that, I'd like to see um, these natural resources um, that are creating energy, whether it's river or water or solar, to be used for the benefit of all people and not being sent to a private firm in Boston that's benefiting off of those resources. But if, if we were really to create projects that were sustainable that ensured that everyone here had electricity, affordable electricity, um, and talked about the ways that we can make the least amount of impact on the environment in order to do so would be where I think the conversation needs to go. So we are coming in to the end of our show here, and I think... We'll end the show with a song. Um, 
Before we do so, though, Lauren, I just wanted to say a few things um, for people to check out Brattleboro Solidarity's upcoming study group about men and patriarchy. That's going to be starting on uh, November 16th, I want to say, but I actually don't have the details in front of me. So please check out our Facebook page at Brattleboro Solidarity to find out more information about that. And next week's show is going to be Anna and Michaela joined by organizers from MOCA, an organization in Springfield, Massachusetts, working to improve the health and wellness of men of color. And we also have additional interviews about dams. So we are going to be doing a part two of um, how dams are affecting people around the world in connection to what Kathy and Joe have talked about here in Vermont. So thank you so much to Kathy and Joe for helping us understand a little bit more what is happening in the struggle of dams. Thank Thank you, you. guys. So our last show, I mean, I apologize. Our last song is going to be Led Zeppelin, When the Levees Break.
So just to end, to give a little bit more details about the uh, men's study group that was announced before that song by Led Zeppelin, um, I have the details in front of me now. And so I just wanted to um, let people know that it's a study group by Brattleboro Solidarity starting on November 15th. There will be four dates, four Thursdays in a row that um, people will be meeting to discuss. Actually, it looks like not in a row. We'll miss the day of mourning, but November 15th, 29th, December 6th, and December 13th. And this group will be um, looking at is male violence a male men's issue and how men can analyze and end patriarchy in this capitalist world. which we depend. I want to start by 